Good evening, everyone. Friends, our first reading, um, the story, uh, the account of uh, Moses and God. Um, uh, when I reflect back on the, the reading and see how um, the reading is attempting uh, to tell us in human language about a great mystery that happened with Moses. Um, and they use the best they can to make us understand. And uh, it's a great mystery. Uh, one of the things, there's many things about the reading, uh, but the, one of the first ones that I picked up on is how God speaks to... God doesn't say, I am God and I created everything. He says, I am the God of your fathers. And he gives their names. And it implies relationship. I'm in relationship with them. And now I will be in relationship with you. And it just tells me about, if you will, what we can about the mindset of God. And we're told, as the reading says, that God appears to Moses in the burning bush and reveals his name. And in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. I am, I am who am. Even that, the name is verb. <laughs> and he goes on to say, I have heard the cries of my people. And I will send you to them to liberate them. It becomes a very turning point in Old Testament, in Torah, because it leads to the Exodus and beyond something greater. That greater is what we hear in the Gospels. In the Gospel, we see how Jesus rejects a belief that if you will, accidents which befall people are inflicted by God as punishment. He acknowledges that there are sin and there must be repentance because he says it. Unless you repent, it's going to happen to you. But he refutes the idea of accidents and even tragedies uh, as being sent from God to punish someone. And yet Jesus tells the Jews of his time, you will lose the promises that were made to you unless you repent. And there is time to repent, is what Jesus would tell them. Although that time is getting shorter. The role of Moses prefigures the role of Jesus. Through Moses, God saved his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. We are the new people of God, and I say that with no arrogance, but with great humility. We have been saved through the waters of baptism from the slavery of sin. And now en route uh, with our leader, Jesus, to the promised land, which we understand is eternal life. 
we too are fed with food from heaven. We do not call it manna. We call it the Holy Eucharist. In the letter to the Romans, St. Paul um, says, in spite of all that God has done for them, most of the Israelites were not pleasing to God. It is a warning to us, as St. Paul said. Today's gospel has been referred to by some folks as the gospel of the last chance. And um, the owner of the orchard approaches his gardener and complains about the fig tree that has not produced anything in three years. And he tells it, cut it down. He says, why should it exhaust my soil? And the gardener's reply we hear is, sir, leave it for another year, one more, and I shall cultivate the ground around it. I will fertilize it, that it may bear fruit in the future, maybe. If not, then you may cut it down. In other words, give it one more chance. What is the lesson of this parable? Because there are many that can be taken from parables. And uh, with parables, there's always the surface meaning to it. And, uh, but there's also the more important one. There's usually a moral uh, and a spiritual one. The surface meaning is that you can only do one of two things then with a fruit tree like this. Get rid of it or give it another chance. And the people of Jesus' time understood what the parable was about on that level. The tree in the story is given another chance. It is given its last chance. If it fails, it will be cut down and die. The spiritual meaning of the parable involves a person or group being given another chance to spiritually produce something. And it will be their last chance. What spiritually unproductive person or group is being offered one more chance in the scripture, putting it in its context? Very likely, of course, it is the Jewish people, and especially their leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. Because usually when Jesus had an accusatory parable, it was directed at them. So we're looking at all of these Gospels to see who is he talking about. In the spiritual meaning of the parable, God is the owner of the orchard, and Jesus is the gardener. Jesus is the one who suggests that the barren tree be given another chance. He elects to cultivate it and to fertilize it, to give it special treatment, unlike any of the past ones, to tend it with concern and love, with his word, with his grace, so it may finally become productive. That was then. 
that is what the context is. But these scriptures are living, so they mean they apply to us. So now what? The barren fig tree must be understood as any one of us or any group among us who is spiritually unproductive. The church, countries, may be taken as present-day versions of God's orchard. The barren fig tree is any of us in church or any of us who walk on this earth, who are fruitless with the word of God and are ungrateful and thus waste his grace. We have been given much, and in being given God's word, God's word, his son, and his son's sanctifying grace, yet many produce less than they should, or worse, nothing at all. The parable is challenging all of us, to receive the word of God and God's grace in a different way. To receive it, as St. James would tell us, and let it fall upon our hearts, and to do something with it. Produce. Using the parable, produce fruit. And the word of God, his son, is the very root and nourishment of the spiritual life of us Christians, so that we may go and produce goodness to the glory of God. A Christian rooted in the word of God and corresponding with the grace of God ought to produce much fruit. Yet many fail to be productive for any number of reasons, I suppose, mostly because of laziness, because they are apathetic or they lack a generous heart because they do not see why they should be grateful to God. Certainly, we can do so much better, particularly because of and with the graces that God gives us. Jesus' parable contains a warning and a threat to you and I. If people refuse, chance after chance, the day will finally come, not when God shuts us out, but when our choices that we deliberately make will shut ourselves out. Today's gospel may be the gospel of the last chance, as it has been said, but it is equally, I think, a gospel of encouragement and hope. Jesus makes himself the tender of the tree that is you. And he stakes his very reputation with his father on the fruit that he is confident, absolutely confident, that you are going to produce for his father. So get busy. This is when I read the scriptures earlier in the week, I was like, this would be a good time to go on vacation, right, Lord? <laughs> because they're tough scriptures. 
one of my closest priest friends said, how are you going to sugarcoat this? And I said, you shouldn't sugarcoat it. I said, that's a great disservice to God's people. But that is exactly what he was going to do, <laughs> is what he said. <laughs> Friends, um, as your pastor, um, I, by canon law, by the Archbishop's decree, have governance over this area. And uh, over you, I don't say that in an arrogant way, I'm your shepherd. And uh, when it comes to the Eucharist, um, it's my responsibility. Absolutely my responsibility. And so... Um, For the past two weeks, mm -hmm. the sacristan has informed me that the Eucharist was found in the back. To find it once, perhaps an accident. To find it twice, maybe not. I'm responsible and will be held responsible for that. So I'm asking all of you, please, when you come forward to receive the Eucharist, consume it in front of the minister. If you receive on the tongue, it's happening on a man. If you put it in your hands, please don't walk away with it. If you have to step to the side for some reason, put it into your mouth. It's heartbreaking for me because I'm held responsible. And I've been your pastor for seven years, and we have to be better than that. Now, if it's someone visiting, but it happened twice in two weeks. When it comes to the Eucharist and non-Catholic Christians, you cannot have the Eucharist. It is the teaching of the church, and I make no apologies for it. The church has her reasons, and they're good ones. So I'm reminding all the other Christians who come and worship with us, we love you, but the Eucharist is not for you. If you truly desire it, there's a way to make that happen. To all of my parishioners, I am begging you, do not walk away with the Eucharist in your hand. It's meant to be consumed immediately. And uh, uh, I'm hoping this won't happen again. But like I said, one week, okay. But a second week in a row, no. No, that cannot continue. I don't know if it's a mistake or if someone, sometimes people have emotional problems and uh, they do that. And others are even for all the devious reasons, but I've never seen that here in our parish. Um, so I ask of you to, to receive these words from your pastor with an open heart and with generosity and, uh, and to please, because if it happens again, I'm going to have to approach the archbishop, and I certainly don't want to, but then he will restrict you from getting it in your hand until we bring it under control. You know, and Oddly enough, uh, the first reading speaks about manna and the 
and about the Eucharist, and St. Paul talks about the sacraments, and as we're talking about the sacrament of baptism, don't make any presumptions because you're baptized, you're automatically saved. That's basically a nutshell what St. Paul is saying, which I'm like, ouch, ow, Paul, ow. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so, my brothers and sisters, let's, uh, let's uh, take care of this great gift that Mother Church has, the Eucharist, and show great reverence and respect for the Eucharist, and that we may be blessed uh, over and over again.